Part 3, Chapter 3, Section 125 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3, History of the Passion, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus. Chapter 3, Retirement to the Mount of Olives, Arrest, Trial, Condemnation, and Crucifixion of Jesus. Section 125 agony of jesus in the garden according to the synoptical narratives jesus immediately after the conclusion of the meal and the singing of the hallel it being his habit during this feast time to spend the night out of jerusalem matthew chapter 21 verse 17 luke chapter 22 verse 39 went to the mount of olives into a garden called gethsemane Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 and 36, and parallel passages. John, who gives the additional particular that the garden lay over the brook Kedron, does not represent him as departing thither until after the long series of valedictory discourses, chapters 14 through 17, of which we shall hereafter have to speak again while john makes the arrest of jesus follow immediately on the arrival of jesus in the garden the synoptists insert between the two that scene which is usually designated the agony of jesus their accounts of this scene are not in unison according to matthew and mark jesus takes with him his three most confidential disciples peter and the sons of zebedee leaving the rest behind is seized with fearfulness and trembling, tells the three disciples that he is sorrowful even unto death, and admonishing them to remain wakeful in the meantime, removes to a distance from them also, that he may offer a prayer for himself, in which, with his face bent to the earth, he entreats that the cup of suffering may pass from him, but still resigns all to the will of his father. When he returns to the disciples, he finds them sleeping, again admonishes them to watchfulness, then removes from them a second time, and repeats the former prayer, after which he once more finds his disciples asleep. For the third time he retires to repeat the prayer, and returning for the third time finds the disciples sleeping, but now awakes them in order to meet the coming betrayer of the number three which thus doubly figures in the narrative of the two first evangelists luke says nothing according to him jesus retires from all the disciples after admonishing them to watch for the distance of about a stone's cast and prays kneeling once only but nearly in the same words as in the other gospels then returns to the disciples and awakes them because Judas is approaching with the multitude. But, on the other hand, Luke, in his single scene of prayer, has two circumstances which are foreign to the other narrators, namely, that while Jesus was yet praying, and immediately before the most violent mental struggle, an angel appeared to strengthen him, and that during the agony which ensued, the sweat of Jesus was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. From the earliest times, this scene in Gethsemane has been a stumbling block, because Jesus therein 
appears to betray a weakness and fear of death, which might be considered unworthy of him. Celsus and Julian, doubtless having in their minds the great examples of the dying Socrates and other heathen sages, expressed contempt for the fear of death exhibited by Jesus. Vanini boldly extolled his own demeanor in the face of execution as superior to that of Jesus, and in the Evangelium Nicodemi, Satan concludes from this scene that Christ is a mere man. The supposition resorted to in this apocryphal book, that the trouble of Jesus was only assumed in order to encourage the devil to enter into a contest with him, is but a confession of inability to reconcile a real truth of that kind with the ideal of Jesus. Hence, appeal has been made to the distinction between the two natures in Christ, the sorrowfulness and the prayer for the removal of the cup, having been ascribed to the human nature, the resignation to the will of the Father, to the divine. As, however, in the first place, this appeared to introduce an inadmissible division in the nature of Jesus, and in the second place, even a fear experienced by his human nature in the prospect of approaching bodily sufferings appeared unworthy of him. His consternation was represented as being of a spiritual and sympathetic character, as arising from the wickedness of Judas. The danger which threatened his disciples and the fate which was impending over his nation. The effort to free the sorrow of Jesus from all reference to physical suffering, or to his own person, attained its highest pitch in the ecclesiastical tenet that Jesus, by substitution, was burthened with the guilt of all mankind, and vicariously endured the wrath of God against that guilt. Some have even supposed that the devil himself wrestled with Jesus. But such a cause for the trouble of Jesus is not found in the text. On the contrary, here as elsewhere, Matthew chapter 20, verse 22 and following, and parallel passages, the cup for the removal of which Jesus prays must be understood of his own bodily sufferings and death. Moreover, the above ecclesiastical opinion is founded on an unscriptural conception of the vicarious office of Jesus. It is true that even in the conception of the synoptists, the suffering of Jesus is a vicarious one for the sins of many. But the substitution consists, according to them, not in Jesus having immediately borne these sins and the punishment due to mankind on account of them, but in a personal suffering being laid upon him on account of those sins, and in order to remove their punishment. Thus, as on the cross, it was not directly the sins of the world and the anger of God in relation to them which afflicted him, but the wounds which he received, and his whole lamentable situation, wherein he was indeed placed for the sins of mankind. So, according to the idea of the evangelists, in Gethsemane also, it was not immediately the feeling of the misery of humanity which occasioned his dismay, but the presentiment of his own suffering, which, however, was encountered in the stead of mankind. 
from the untenable ecclesiastical view of the agony of jesus a descent has in more modern times been made to coarse materialism by reducing what it was thought hopeless to justify ethically as a mental condition to a purely physical one and supposing that jesus was attacked by some malady in gethsemane an opinion which paulus with a severity which he should only have more industriously applied to his own explanations pronounces to be altogether unseemly and opposed to the text though he does not regard as improbable human's hypothesis that in addition to his inward sorrow jesus had contracted a cold in the clayey ground traversed by the kedron on the other hand the scene has been depicted in the colours of modern sentimentalism and the feelings of friendship the pain of separation the thoughts of parting have been assigned as the causes which so lacerated the mind of jesus or a confused blending of all the different kinds of sorrow selfish and sympathetic sensual and spiritual has been presupposed paulus explains if it be possible let this cup pass from me as an expression of a purely moral anxiety on the part of jesus as to whether it were the will of god that he should give himself up to the attack immediately at hand or whether it were not more accordant with the divine pleasure that he should yet escape from this danger thus converting into a mere inquiry of god what is obviously the most urgent prayer while olhausen falls back on the ecclesiastical theory and authoritatively declares that the supposition of external corporeal suffering having called forth the anguish of jesus ought to be banished as one which would annihilate the essential characteristics of his mission others have more correctly acknowledged that in that anguish the passionate wish to be delivered from the terrible sufferings in prospect the horror of sensitive nature in the face of annihilation are certainly apparent with justice also it is remarked in opposition to the reproach which has been cast on jesus that the speedy conquest over rebellious nature removes every appearance of sinfulness that moreover the shrinking of physical nature at the prospect of annihilation belongs to the essential conditions of life nay that the purer the human nature in an individual the more susceptible is it in relation to suffering and annihilation that the conquest over suffering intensely appreciated is greater than a stoical or even a socratic insensibility with more reason criticism has attacked the peculiar representation of the third gospel the strengthening angel has created no little difficulty to the ancient church on dogmatical grounds to modern exposition on critical grounds an ancient scolium on the consideration that he who was adored and glorified with fear and trembling by all the celestial powers did not need the strengthening of an angel interprets the eniskuon ascribed to the angel as a declaring strong that is as the offering of a doxology while others rather than admit that jesus could need the strengthening by an angel transform the 
angelos enisquon, into an evil angel, who attempted to use force against Jesus. The Orthodox also, by founding a distinction between the state of humiliation and privation in Christ and that of his glorification, or in some similar way, have long blunted the edge of the dogmatical difficulty. But in place of this, a critical objection has been only so much the more decidedly developed. In consideration of the suspicion which, according to our earlier observations, attaches to every alleged angelic appearance, it has been sought to reduce the angel in this narrative first into a man, and then into an image of the composure which Jesus regained. But the right point in the angelic appearance for criticism to grapple with is indicated by the circumstance that Luke is the only evangelist from whom we learn it. If, according to the ordinary presupposition, the first and fourth gospels are of apostolic origin, why this silence as to the angel on the part of Matthew, who is believed to have been in the garden? Why especially on the part of John, who was among the three in the nearer neighborhood of Jesus? If it be said, because sleepy as they were, and at some distance, and moreover under cover of the night, they did not observe him, it must be asked, whence are we to suppose that Luke received this information? That, assuming the disciples not to have themselves observed the appearance, Jesus should have narrated it to them on that evening, there is, from the intense excitement of those hours, and the circumstance that the return of Jesus to his disciples was immediately followed by the arrival of Judas, little probability, and as little that he communicated it to them in the days after the resurrection, and that nevertheless this information appeared worthy of record to none but the third evangelist, who yet received it only at second hand. As in this manner, there is every presumption against the historical character of the angelic appearance. Why should not this also, like all appearances of the same kind which have come under our notice, especially in the history of the infancy of Jesus, be interpreted by us mythically? Gobbler has been before us in advancing the idea that in the primitive Christian community the rapid transition from the most violent mental conflict to the most tranquil resignation, which was observable in Jesus on that night, was explained, agreeably to the Jewish mode of thought, by the intervention of a strengthening angel, and that this explanation may have mingled itself with the narrative. Schleiermacher, too, finds it the most probable that this moment, described by Jesus himself as one of hard trial, was early glorified in hymns by angelic appearances, and that this embellishment, originally intended in a merely poetical sense, was received by the narrator of the third gospel as historical. The other feature peculiar to Luke, namely the bloody sweat, was early felt to be no less fraught with difficulty than the strengthening by the angel. At least it appears to have been this more than anything else, which occasioned the exclusion of the entire edition in Luke verses 43 and 44, 
from many ancient copies of the Gospels. For as the Orthodox, who, according to Epiphanius, rejected the passage, appear to have shrunk the most from the lowest degree of fear which is expressed by the bloody sweat, so to the docetic opinions of some who did not receive this passage, this was the only particular which could give offence. Thus, in an earlier age, doubts were raised respecting the fitness of the bloody sweat of Jesus on dogmatical considerations, while in more modern times this has been done on psychological grounds. It is true that authorities are adduced for instances of bloody sweat from Aristotle down to the more recent investigators of nature, but such a phenomenon is only mentioned as extremely rare, and as a symptom of decided disease. Hence, Paulus points to the, as it were, as indicating that it is not directly a bloody sweat which is here spoken of, but only a sweat which might be compared to blood. This comparison, however, he refers only to the thick appearance of the drops, and Olhausen also agrees with him thus far that a red color of the perspiration is not necessarily included in the comparison. But in the course of a narrative which is meant as a prelude to the sanguinary death of Jesus, it is the most natural to take the comparison of the sweat to drops of blood in its full sense. Further, here, yet more forcibly than in relation to the angelic appearance, the question suggests itself, how did Luke obtain this information? Or, to pass by all questions which must take the same form in this instance as in the previous one, how could the disciples at a distance and in the night discern the falling of drops of blood according to paulus indeed it ought not to be said that the sweat fell for as the word falling refers not to sweat but to the drops of blood which are introduced merely for the purpose of comparison it is only meant that a sweat as thick and heavy as falling drops of blood stood on the brow of Jesus. But whether it be said, the sweat fell like drops of blood to the earth, or it was like drops of blood falling to the earth, it comes pretty much to the same thing, at least the comparison of a sweat standing on the brow to blood falling on the earth would not be very apt especially if together with the falling, we are to abstract also the color of the blood, so that of the words, as it were drops of blood falling on the ground, only as it were drops would properly have any decided meaning. Since then we can neither comprehend the circumstance nor conceive what historical authority for it the narrator could have had, let us, with Schleiermacher, rather take this feature also as a poetical one construed historically by the evangelist, or better still, as a mythical one, the origin of which may be easily explained from the tendency to perfect the conflict in the garden as a prelude to the sufferings of Jesus on the cross, by showing that not merely the psychical aspect of that suffering was foreshadowed in the mental trouble, 
but also its physical aspect in the bloody sweat. As a counterpoise to this peculiarity of Luke, his two predecessors have, as we have said, the twofold occurrence of the number three, the three disciples taken apart, and the three retirements and prayers of Jesus. It has indeed been contended that so restless a movement hither and thither, so rapid an alternation of retirement and return, is entirely suited to the state of mind in which Jesus then was, and also that in the repetition of the prayer there is correctly shown an appropriate gradation, a more and more complete resignation to the will of the Father. But that the two narrators count the retirements of Jesus, marking them by the expressions ek deuteron and ek triton, at once shows that the number three was a point of importance to them. And when Matthew, though he certainly gives in the second prayer an expression somewhat different from that of the first, in the third makes Jesus only repeat the same words. And when Mark does this even the second time, this is a significant proof that they were embarrassed how to fill up the favorite number three with appropriate matter. According to Olhausen, Matthew, with his three acts of this conflict, must be right in opposition to Luke, because these three attacks made on Jesus through the medium of fear correspond to the three attacks through the medium of desire in the history of the temptation. This parallel is well founded. It only leads to an opposite result to that deduced by Olhausen. For which is more probable, that in both cases the threefold repetition of the attack had an objective ground in a latent law of the kingdom of spirits, and hence is to be regarded as really historical, or that it had merely a subjective ground in the manner of the legend, so that the occurrence of this number here, as certainly as above in the history of the temptation, points to something mythical. If, then, we subtract the angel, the bloody sweat, and the precisely threefold repetition of the retirement and prayer of Jesus as mythical additions, there remains so far as an historical kernel the fact that Jesus, on that evening in the garden, experienced a violent access of fear, and prayed that his sufferings might be averted with the reservation, nevertheless, of an entire submission to the will of God. And at this point of the inquiry, it is not a little surprising, on the ordinary view of the relation between our Gospels, that even this fundamental fact of the history in question is wanting in the Gospel of John. End of section 125